Welcome, colleagues and friends. Today we'll continue our exploration of the first verse of Genesis. Just to summarize, last week we spoke about the methodology of how the Bible, the Torah, presents to us certain truths by giving us a picture that it invites us to unravel. It gives us some details. Oftentimes the details may be contradictory, which forces us to enter body and soul, head and body, into the picture, to make decisions, to trade implications, to choose sides, and therefore, without being preached to, we become convinced that uh, what it tells us is what we also believe. We spoke last time about the split-screen technique, when two different perspectives of the same picture are presented to us. We spoke specifically of the fact that the first verse in Genesis presents us with both God as the creator of the world from nothing and God as the fashioner and shaper of pre-existing matter. This continues at the end of the verse as well, when we speak about creating or making heaven and earth. I'll take uh, my first tangent right now and go back to when we discussed that among Jewish interpreters the prevailing view is that the world was created from nothing but there are also some authorities who take the position that it was shaped out of pre-existing matter although that matter may not have been the same matter that we know may have been a matter that cannot uh, yet accept shape. Uh, Homer that cannot accept Tzura. Matter that cannot accept form. In any case, I listed at that time four authorities that appear to hold that the world was created from something pre-existent. Amongst them was Maimonides, according to Leo Strauss's interpretation, the Kuzari, Rabiuda Levi, who maintained that such interpretation is compatible with Jewish belief, and Gersonides, the Ralbach, who held that definitively, and of course Ibn Ezra, who also held that the world was created from something pre-existent and held it with conviction. As I was thinking about this, and here's where tangent number one comes in, I realized that there are other indications that this was a popular view. What came to my mind is the prayer of Aleinu, an ancient prayer, according to tradition, composed by Joshua as he entered the Promised Land which starts with the words, it is upon us 
to praise the master of everything. To give or to ascribe greatness to a fashioner of in the beginning. La teis dula liotzer bereishis. The fashioner of the beginning. That induced me to look at other parts of morning liturgy, and it is curious that uh, God is presented there as a maker and a fashioner, and not as a creator. Of course, one can explain differently, but I did find that as a very curious aspect, and potentially another source that holds in creation of pre-existing matter. Okay, end of tangent one. Back to God creating heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. No, 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 not heaven and earth. The heaven and the earth. One should ask at this point, why uh, do we do we see it presented as heaven and earth? Why not mountains and the seas? Why not firmament and land? Why not men and animals? What is it specific about the heaven and the earth that the verse is trying to communicate? The answer must depend on the very strong connection between heaven and earth in biblical literature in general. The combination of heaven and earth is found many times in many different contexts. What is different here <coughs> is that it is the heaven and the earth. Now, we also must think about what was actually in place at the time when God is said to have created the heaven and the earth. It seems like there was no heaven, there was no earth, there was just water, water everywhere. In the subsequent verses, we're told that there was water that was separated from the water, a firmament was firmed up, and dry land appeared. So what is heaven, what is earth exactly in a situation like that, when there is no firmament, there's no land, there's just water above and the water below? Before we come back to this question, I'd like to take a second tangent today, and that will be a tangent on the accusative in the holy tongue. Now, accusative is a grammatical form which is found in Indo-European languages. In general, Indo-European languages, when they want to indicate that something belongs to someone, or something is being given or transferred to someone, or there is an object, a subject acting on the object. They change the endings of the words, or sometimes the beginning of the words. That is not how the Semitic languages function. In the Semitic languages, you change the vowels. So when we want to say that God created heaven and earth, we do it by combining the definite article, what we call the in English. We say Hashimayim Vahoritz. 
and then to create uh, to 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 express a stronger connection between the subject which acts and the object which is acted upon we will add the word s or et aleph tof so when god created heaven and earth he created et hashamayim we et haoritz there's a very strong degree of specification here and there's a very strong direct connection between God who creates and the subject that he created. Uh, I've never seen et hashemayim, et and hey, to be expressed in the terms of the accusative tense and the parallel uh, between this construction, the European constructions of accusative, uh, I have never seen clearly explicated, but that seems clear enough to me. Now, going further in this tangent, what is the English definite article T-H-E? Well, is it not a contracted form of et ha? The heaven et ha shemayim. T-H-E. Curious, isn't it? Well, not as curious as you might imagine. There is as an as of yet unexplained convergence between Germanic languages and Semitic languages, which linguists are fully aware of but don't really know how to explain. In Germanic languages, you frequently find that when the tense changes, let's say from past to from present to past, at perfect. It is done similar to Semitic languages by changing the vowels. I run, I ran, R A N, hung and hang, and so forth. That is not a feature of, let's say, Romance languages or Slavic languages for that matter, something unique to Germanic. There are other points of connection between Germanic and Semitic languages. There are many words in English, for example, that using standard linguistic methods you can show to be similar or derived from Hebrew words. Isaac Moseson published a dictionary of 23,000 such comparisons. For more, you can look at edenics.org, E-D-E-N-I-C-S dot O-R-G. The linguists theorize that somehow and somewhere Phoenicians sailed up the Rhine and somehow changed the language, na nature of Germanic, proto-Germanic language, and imported therein this Semitic features. Strange, isn't it? Now, back from the tangent to our discussion. Just to recapitulate, the formulation the heaven and the earth 
is somewhat strange. It is surprising because there was no other heaven on earth, certainly to use a definite uh, article. And there was in fact in existence no such thing as heaven and earth at that moment. It was all water. Water that subsequently had to be separated. So, how might we understand it along the path in which we walk? Before I make a suggestion, let's take another step back and let's talk about the big question of religion. What is the relationship between God and the world? The first, the oldest, most venerable and the most mistaken is what we would call idolatry. God is in the world. God is limited by the world. Now when I say that, I don't mean that Zeus and God, God forbid, are cognates and it's just a matter what you call it. No. A pagan god could be a big one like Zeus, could be semi-gods, demigods, household gods, city gods, gods of trees and grasses. The whole space of the world is filled with all kinds of gradations and hierarchies of gods. That is idolatry. What's, what's common to all of these gods, however, is that they are not outside of the world, and they are subject to the same rules. In Greek mythology, for example, the fates ruled over all. Marai was the fate that, according to some sources, even Zeus could not control and was subject to. Other sources seem to disagree on this point, but certainly your average uh, middle-level god was completely subject to fate. Any religion that places God squarely and solely within the world is an idolatrous religion. Now, a refinement in this is what we now call panentheism. Everything is God kind of Spinoza's uh, formulation, the totality of all things in the world are God. Same problem. A God who is not above the world is subject to limitations of it. Or as Jeremiah says, chapter 10, 11, Say so to them, means to the nations. Gods who did not make heaven and earth, notice heaven and earth conjunction again, will be destroyed from this heavens and uh, this earth. The second model is of God, the creator who made the world. 
and stays out of it. Now this God might possibly supervise and watch from his high heaven position, or from his above the heaven position, to be more correct. What is going on here? He may have ways through angels to reward and to punish and to run the world. But he might as well be totally uninterested. As we spoke last week, to watch the clockmaker's uh, paradigm. God made the world, wound it up and left. That is obviously not a basis for true, passionate and deeply felt religious faith. On the other hand, a God who is outside the world, even if he's somehow supervising and watching, is hard to relate to. For us limited human beings, it is difficult to relate to a God who is so far There is one other possibility. God is both within the world and outside the world. How is that? Well, he could span the world. The Bible oscillates between these two positions, God who is outside the world and God who is both inside and outside the world. And this is what we're faced with here in this verse as well. Here is a verse that makes it clear that God is not with us here on earth, Psalms 115.16 The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he gave to the sons of men. On the other hand, here's a different verse. Isaiah 66.1 uses the metaphor and the imagery of God who spans the world. The heavens are my throne, and the earth the footstool for my feet. So here you have an image of a God for whom even heavens are just the place on which he sits. He himself is beyond the heaven. And yet he is the lower portion of him, so to speak. His feet are within this world. Now that we explored this important primal question of religion. Let's look back and understand that the entire first verse, the first half of it, we already showed. It's trying to represent God as both within this world, fashioner and maker, and outside of this world as a creator. It does not resolve the paradox here. As we gradually go through Genesis we will see that it teaches us through examples, 
through things that we can really relate to and understand, that he is both within the world and outside the world. For example, God descends to see what men have done when they build the Tower of Babel. He descends to see how to treat the generation of dispersion, the antediluvian generation. So he is up there. On the other hand, in this very second verse of Genesis, he is here in this world, fashioning, making, shaping, and reapportioning. And the Spirit of the Lord hovers over the waters. Here we see another example, oh, very connected to the previous example. After all, that was about the beginning of the verse, and now we're talking about the ending of the verse, where we are presenting, we're being presented with a double screen. We're told that in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and yet the emphasis on the heaven and earth is that of very direct creation, implying that God is outside of the world. But the beginning of the verse was somewhat confusing and fully capable of being interpreted as God who is created, creating the pre-existing matter. And then in verse 2, we go into him being here with us, totally within the world, shaping making and putting into its place. And that continues pretty much throughout Genesis. God is with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam hears the voice of God, or maybe the voice of God that's walking through the garden, or the voice of God who is walking through the garden. Is the voice walking? Is it God who is walking? Again, uh, giving us a uh, double screen presentation. Only as we go through it further and further, and as Abraham learns about the nature of God, as we get into the different names, and we introduce the different names of God, different aspects, different perceptions, the picture begins to fill in and connect, until we finally realize that this God, the God of our fathers and the God of creation, is both inside the world, very close, who is like the Lord our God whenever we call to him, and he is also beyond the world and not subject to its limitation. So, among the most important things that Genesis tells us, amongst many other important things, is this concept. God is the creator of the world, is outside of it, and like nothing in, within it. But God is with us in every step of the way. And you might ask, why? Why isn't it, isn't it better to give us a clear picture, lay it all out at once? Why do we need to struggle? Why do we need to deal with questions? Why do we need to resolve, to interpret, to explicate? You know why? 
because religion is just like life. Life is complex and contradictory. Life presents us with challenges with which we must sometimes deal this way and sometimes another way. Not everything in life can be resolved, clear, and filed away in its appropriate place. Sometimes we deal with things one way, sometimes we deal with things in another completely contradictory way. That is human existence in the world, and that is how the Bible teaches us its truth. Thank you very much for listening. May you be well. Till the next time.